Welcome to California Groundbreakers, which focuses on the place that starts trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done nationwide and around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. We've created a podcast series called This Changes Everything, which focuses on what California will look like in the post-pandemic future. We're talking with California groundbreakers about how they see the Golden State changing for the better or for the worse, or still to be determined, as we move out of shutdown. If you like what you hear, please help us continue by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support Us link on our SoundCloud podcast page, or on the Donate tab of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Few business sectors in California were more battered by the pandemic than the dining industry. During the year of shutdowns, nearly a third of the state's restaurants permanently closed, and two-thirds of workers temporarily lost their jobs. Now, as California opens back up, how many restaurants will reopen, and will they bounce back? Join us as we talk with two people who write about California's dining scene. Janelle Bitker is the food enterprise reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and Javier Cabral is the editor of LA Taco. They'll tell us how restaurants are adapting post-pandemic and what we should expect now when we go out to eat. Hi everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm executive director of California Groundbreakers and thank you for tuning in today. So 2020 was the year I became a really good cook, even though I wasn't planning to. But obviously, dining out last year wasn't such a great experience. So I made ratatouille and succotash last summer from vegetables out of the brand new garden I started. I made a lot of really good pasta sauces in the fall, although I didn't make the pasta. And I finessed the art of cream of vegetable soup over the winter months. But after 15 months of that, I am ready to take off the apron, dump the pots and pans, and go out and pay someone else to cook and serve a meal for me. But will my favorite restaurants from the before times still be there in downtown Sacramento, near where I live? And if so, will they be what I remember or will they be totally different? I feel like these questions are being asked by diners in cities and towns around California. After all, we are a foodie state and we love the fact that Central Valley Farms help make the reputation, sometimes Michelin-starred reputations, of restaurants in Los Angeles, the Bay Area, wine country, and other places. But this pandemic gave a gut punch to restaurants all over the state and across the board, from four-star fine dining establishments to taquerias and pizza parlors on the corner. In fact, I just read a story in the San Francisco Chronicle recently that nearly a third of restaurants statewide have permanently closed during the pandemic. That's according to a report presented to the state Senate in May. So whither goest the restaurants in California and the dining scene? How are they impacted by the year 2020 and all the major events that happened during that time? I've invited two people who eat food and write about it for a living and two of the state's most hopping food scenes. Honestly, a couple of the world's most hopping food scenes to join me here today and answer my questions about that. So let me introduce first Janelle Bitker. She is food enterprise reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. She covers restaurant news as well as Bay Area culture at large through a food lens. So welcome, Janelle. Thank you. And also we have Javier Cabral. He is editor of LA Taco. It's an online source of news and information covering food, culture, and community in the Los Angeles metropolitan area. I like his bio because it says he is a self-described Vato Loco from East LA, who's been reporting on food culture and punk rock, that's a great combo, since 2005. And besides being editor of LA Taco, 
He's also associate producer of Las Cronicas del Taco. That's Taco Chronicles for Escabachos on Netflix. Season one and two are there and they're working on season three. So welcome, Javier. Thank you so much for having me. Excited. So I'm excited too, because I want to, I, I love food. Obviously we both do. So I'm going to try and get in as many questions as I can about this. Uh, the first thing I wanted to, to ask you about is, uh, I guess it's been 15 and a half months, 16 months, more or less since the March shutdown changed everything and obviously changed the restaurant scene. I wanted to ask you what, what notable thing in the past 15 months, something you heard, saw, or experienced, uh, when it comes to dining out, uh, really made you say to yourself, you know what, this makes me realize the restaurant industry has totally changed going forward, uh, you know, and that could have been as a journalist covering the scene or just simply as a diner or a customer. What really was that uh, impact that made you think things have changed? So Janelle, let me start with you. Well, I think those big realizations occurred earlier in the pandemic things closed, then things were slowly starting to open. And that was when everything was honestly very scary. And I remember wanting to go out and support restaurants and going to my favorite place. And they just had um, a table at the door and you weren't allowed in and they were handing you food through the window. And that's also where I bought my produce box for the week. And I also got some salad dressings and I also got drinks then it was like this was my big outing and I'm just buying everything I need from the week from this one restaurant and it was just the owner there no staff had come back and it it was really jarring like how are we going to recover from this but it is amazing to be you know 14 months after that point and see that same restaurant and many other restaurants back open in almost normal capacity um so I think we're in an interesting period now. So in Los Angeles, uh, you really saw um, a great pivot to what I call, or what we call DM only food, meaning that there were chefs and cooks uh, who didn't really have a traditional restaurant model, but instead would sell food um, outside of, um, of their house, uh, or they would, you know, you would, uh, order your food via DM when you found out, you know, whatever cool pop-up they were doing, you would, you know, send them a message, hey, I want this, I want that. You would pay them through Zelle. And then you would they wouldn't give you the address until like the day of, and then you go pick it up and they would come put it in your trunk. So I found myself, you know, with the, you know, as the editor of LA Taco, uh, making these these kind of, of editorial decisions every day, there were more most more of the exciting stories more of the exciting food culture stories were being rooted in these uh pop-ups more than a standard brick and mortar operation so that's what that was a, a big moment where i was like you know because people always ask what's the address what are the hours um but in, in the case of a pop-up you have to do a little work to find the food so that's that that was i would, I would say the, the biggest change in la's food culture um I totally agree with you, Javier. And I, some of my favorite food from the pandemic came from, you know, a lockbox outside someone's house. But I'm curious in LA, um, how are those pop-ups doing now? Because what I've noticed in the Bay Area is they're almost all gone. Like a lot of those chefs went and took restaurant jobs again, or they formalized and got commercial kitchens and have regular schedules and you can pick up from a, from a more, 
expected location. But yeah, how is that underground scene playing out in LA? It's still going strong. Um, I, I, I mean, I did read a report recently that, uh, you know, that, that, that they're not selling as much food because obviously there are much more options now. But I mean, you know, I, I found what my favorite pizzeria or my favorite pizza during the quarantine and that the company was called Quarantine Pizza Company. And they had like a really long fermented dough and they started they have started doing more pop ups at breweries, not outside of their home. Uh, you know, but I, it's it's, uh, you know, there was another one called Golden Rice where they had like crispy rice domes, um, you know, like a, a tarik domes with like chicken around it. That, I think that one is still open. There's another one called a Little Fish or Big Fish. Uh, and they did like fish sandwiches and that was still open. Um, you, you have to remember that like street vending or pop-up culture has been a huge part of LA dining um, since like, you know, the beginning almost. So, you know, street pop-ups were an extension of street vending here. Yeah. And Janelle, question for you too, like in San Francisco, what is, what is thriving? Um, what is changing? Cause I, I, again, it just feels like with this one third of restaurants uh, statewide uh, closing during the pandemic, a lot of them I'm assuming are in the Bay area. So what, what's the scene like now? It's good, honestly. Um, uh, a lot of the expected places hung on like pizza restaurants, um, taquerias, places that already did a lot of takeout stayed pretty strong throughout the pandemic. But then a lot of your, you know, mom and pop neighborhood restaurants also did really well because people were staying home and frequenting the places they could walk to. Um, the places that I think struggled the most and closed the most were the ones in downtown San Francisco who depended on office workers. Um, but even then, a lot of the more upscale restaurants um, honestly just had a lot of financial backing a lot of deep pockets. Um, some of them were able to stay temporarily closed this entire time and haven't even reopened yet, but plan to. Um, so I think it's hard to make those generalizations. Because oh, I was going to ask uh, uh, about fine dining. Uh, I When I was researching the topic, I just saw the question in so many headlines, is fine dining dead? Um, although it just seems like now, again, as people want to get out, maybe that fine dining experience um, is something they want to do. So for both of you, uh, I want to ask, you know, what does what does fine dining look like? And are people, you know, going to embrace it um, again? And will fine dining, you know, uh, change itself up in some ways because of the pandemic? Well, earlier, um, a lot of Bay Area restaurants were struggling to put their fine dining into boxes and they were doing these elaborate 10 course meal kits or they were bringing their restaurants to farms and doing this very luxurious outdoor experience with a limo ride included um, but now these fine dining restaurants are pretty much all open and reservations are very hard to get our food critic is having a difficult time going to the restaurants she needs to go to for work. Um, it seems like everyone wants to go out and everyone wants to spend $300 for dinner if they are someone who can afford it. Um, so it's interesting. I remember reading and writing some of those stories about what's the future of fine dining, but for those that are still open, they're getting a lot of business right now. <laughs> 
Javier, what about it? What in LA? Yeah. Definitely echoing, uh, you know, definitely echoing her thoughts. Um, uh, it's the roaring twenties all over again, um, here in LA, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's interesting, right? It's funny because fine dining has always been like the, one of the biggest criticisms of LA dining, just because, you know, we are a city of tacos and we are a city of, uh, of, you know, street vending and, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, more family regional style dining. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've, I've gone out a couple of times, uh, you know, since I got, I've gotten vaccinated uh, down to a couple of restaurants in, in the Arts District in L.A. And, yeah, the wait times are long. You, you show up for your reservation and you have to wait another half hour, 40 minutes. You get you order your food. So I think that's one of the biggest differences is like there is a, a huge demand. But, you know, as some of us are aware, there's also a huge shortage of staff and workers and cooks who are who are, uh, they don't, you know, it's. Once they've started, they've gotten a taste of working for themselves, doing their own pop-ups, doing their own, you know, uh, interpretations of, of, of food that they love. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, going back to the kitchen life is, is, uh, is tough. You know, it's a, it's a grueling life. It's uh, long hours and it's really um, painstaking. So, um, yeah, it's, there, is a, there, is, there is a huge demand, but in that, you know, the, the offset of that is that, you know, I think the diners are going to have to be patient because it's, uh, it's really packed out there right now. And I want to ask you more specific questions about that, but there's a term that I also want to ask you about right now, ghost kitchens, which I'll, I'll just say I, I hadn't heard of uh, before the pandemic, but now I hear about them all the time. Uh, ghost kitchens, <clears throat> and I just saw that Guy Fieri, a California native from the Santa Rosa area, is uh, just going all in into ghost kitchens. Uh, to me, it just seems like, uh, you know, I, I see their, their reason, the, what they were there for, for the pandemic, but it sounds like they're here to stay. And I just, I guess I'm just curious, what is the impact of ghost kitchens on, on dining overall? Is it, is it just so profitable that restaurants are going to do it? Um, are, are people, you know, uh, so used to takeout uh, that, that, you know, ghost kitchens will just, uh be there what's the what's the take on ghost kitchens and and what they mean um i think a lot of people are asking those same questions right now and a lot of restaurant owners are debating do i want to take this step um and in the bay area we're seeing quite a few of the more established sort of small independent chains take the leap and try out these ghost kitchens especially because there's so many different models there's ones where you're basically leasing a small commercial kitchen within this complex and um, you're operating it yourself and others you're making food in your own restaurant and someone is picking it up and then finishing cooking it in a ghost kitchen and there's all these different models all these different financial equations um, and as I said, a lot of area restaurant owners are trying it, but the ones I've talked to have all said it's not profitable right now. And it's just, do they think it's worth it to try because it will be? Um, it's just a big gamble at this point. And I think the people who aren't trying it are very worried um, because it is creating more competition. And we're now seeing in the Bay Area, some East Coast brands move in and it's happening in ghost kitchens like Milk Bar, that famous bakery just opened in a DoorDash kitchen in the Bay Area. And it's probably going to take sales from other brick and mortar bakeries. Because you can't order 
uh, directly face to face, right through the smoke bar. You, it's through DoorDash, at least for the time being. It depends. Some of these ghost kitchens, you can walk up and order, but it's a very techie interface. You like go to an iPad and someone hands you a bag out of nowhere type of thing. <laughs> Sounds very San Francisco. Uh, Javier, ghost kitchens in LA, is that uh, changing things? Yeah, you know what? I, it's, uh, it's, I've, uh, we published a fair amount of stories on LA Taco that documented, you know, the, this boom of ghost kitchens um, before the pandemic, actually. Uh, so I wouldn't say it was a result of the pandemic or it's because of that. It's it, the re, the grim reality is that, you know, here in California, everything is super expensive if you want to have a, you know, a food service, uh, you know, operation. So if um, you did see some, uh, you know, kind of old school restaurants try that approach, but yet, but you have to remember LA is wild, you know, it's such as uh, there's so much, it's such a sprawling city. And the variable of traffic and 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 high gas prices, uh, which is you know which is dependent on like these these delivery apps and the people who uh, who work um, in, in these delivery apps, you know, as the drivers. So I I don't know you you hear you you kind of heard murmurs of it and you saw a couple of headlines, but I I didn't I don't think it's a it's such a a, a big uh, stake yet in in LA's dining scene as as uh, as you as probably many people would think it is because it's it's a uh, it's very dense it's very expensive. Um, and while some people use those food delivery apps, um, not everyone does. Yeah. I'll just say as a Gen Xer and living in New York and San Francisco, I just, you know, called up or I, now I would do an online to, uh, to my, you know, corner, uh, Thai restaurant or taqueria and they would just come over, you know, like standard takeout. So this ghost kitchen thing is kind of confusing to me. Like, isn't that just why not just take out from the before times? Yeah, and and also you know we 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 all lived through like the you know this recent awareness of how much uh, commission uh, these uh, these food delivery apps take, and you know we saw a lot of restaurant owners be very very um, direct and public with their opinions on them, and then you you know in um, even the bay there was some some litigation or some uh, a new law that went into effect, I believe, right? A lot of fee caps, um, yes, yeah, that are going to be permanent because DoorDash and, and Grubhub and those companies reportedly would charge, you know, 30% commission. And now the fee cap in a lot of Bay Area cities is 15. Okay. So a question I, I'm going to refer back to Javier, you had talked about, you know, staff and, and the hours and the wages uh, that uh, are were uh, in the restaurant industry. And now it feels like that's changing the whole labor scene and also the view of, you know, essential workers and um, the, the makeup of kitchen staff and management. It just seems that there's so much going on uh, in 2020 um, with racial justice, Me Too, that has just changed things up. I wanted to ask you about what you're seeing in terms of how things are changing from the, you know, what the workers are uh, wanting, what they're saying, how they're acting, how management uh, is responding to those and reacting. Uh, it just seems like there's so many interesting stories that we've seen, you know, Janelle, you wrote a couple like on, on, on me too and how it's been affecting the, the brewing industry in California. Um, uh, obviously back in New York, there was the Bon Appetit uh, test kitchen um, blow up uh, and that has changed things. So how is that, how is that shaping things uh, up here in California 
from what you're seeing? So in in, uh, in LA, you know, I've seen uh, you know the hiring process become almost a, a, a like a, it's become an act of almost entertainment, or it's become an act of like you know you like some restaurants will post videos uh, and you know make a personal plea, like a personal video. Hey, we're hiring right now, just kind of to show more human the the human side of owning a restaurant and like who you who you will be, who you will be working with. I've also seen other restaurants straight up court, you know, uh, you know, straight up try to court um, potential employees by offering them like free meals or offering them, you know, some in, in some kind of elaborate perks. Um, you've also seen some very, very uh, in your face poaching of, uh, of restaurants, uh, of, of restaurant workers for you know a couple more dollars. So it's extremely cutthroat. It's extremely cutthroat. And uh, with LA Taco, we, we covered a lot of the of the uprisings in, in downtown LA and you know, because of George Floyd. And I think what all that has brought is just a more unabashed, direct communication lines between workers and restaurants. You know, it used to be like the I, I saw I saw the the narrative shift from uh, you know that oh that that lazy the lazy restaurant workers are, are relying on unemployment um, and they're getting paid more money on that than, you know, than they would if they were to go back to work. I saw that narrative shift from uh, that to like, wait a minute, it's really expensive to live in LA and to live in San Francisco. Um, it's maybe it's not about that, but it's about the restaurants not paying a living wage for these cities. So it's, it's interesting to, 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 to watch from afar and as a journalist, you know, see these, these uh, narrative shifts as they happen in real life. Yeah, in in the Bay Area, which is maybe the most expensive place in the country, probably, definitely, um, restaurant owners are boosting their wages. I think they know they have to, otherwise no one's going to work from them. So that's been an interesting thing to see. Um, They are in debt. Uh, They're trying to save their businesses, but they would have to close if they can't get enough workers. So they kind of have no choice but to try to be as attractive as possible. In addition to higher wages, um, I'm seeing more uh, benefits and talk of increasing those benefits. Um, And then the big debate around the Bay Area right now is around tipping and what works. Um, We're seeing restaurants that used to do service charges or include the tips in their prices actually go back to tipping because they can't hire staff and servers think they can make more money off of tips. But then on the opposite side, we're seeing restaurants that used to do tipping, see the pandemic as this reset moment. think about all of the questions around equity that have come out of this past year and a half. And they're thinking, well, now I can bring more money to back of house staff if I change the tipping structure. Um, So that has been, I think, on everyone's mind. um, And it's really changing up the staffing issue as well. Yeah, I was, and on that note, Janelle, that was a great point. Thank you for, for reminding me. In LA, what we saw too, in terms of social justice and dining was in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Mayor Garcetti offered a lot of alfresco flexibilities to, to restaurants, right? They, they, uh, he, the city, the LA, the LA County Health Department allowed them to put up chairs and tables and you know, curbs that would otherwise be not available for, for restaurants. 
Um, and but in those flexibilities, uh, street vending was completely left out, uh, or street vending flexibilities. So of course, you know the you know people spoke up about it, and the city took it back, and you know, and the city uh, did grow to eventually allow flexibilities for for street vendors um, to be to be able to vend, to not be able to 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 not be to to not um, get fined, or to not um, uh, to to at least to to decriminalize it as as LA has recently legalized it. But um, so that that was you know that that was a huge I would say that jump started the the street dining conver- I'm sorry the street vending legalization conversations in LA which is a huge topic um, because obviously you know the street vendors are organizing and they're speaking up and they're um, they're asking for for uh, more flexibilities but at the same time you know the the brick and mortar restaurants that are that are next to them are like you know they have their own perspective as well that that is not uh, equate to what they're saying. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a give and take, but what, so again, like I said, what the pandemic did was just, uh, open up the communication lines um, with everyone. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California groundbreakers podcasts. We're working on more episodes of this changes everything literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreaker supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on the right-hand side of our podcast page on SoundCloud. That's at soundcloud.com slash californiagroundbreakers. Or click on the Donate tab of our homepage of our website at californiagroundbreakers.org. And if you have questions to ask about how California will change in post-pandemic times, or you want to suggest a topic to cover, or an expert to interview for an episode of This Changes Everything, email us at info at californiagroundbreakers.org and give us a few details so we can get in touch. Thanks for lending us your ears and giving us your support as well. So I've been researching a lot, obviously for this episode, about food in California. And I, I've been reading a lot about food too over the past year, not just cookbooks uh, at the kitchen, but just how um, food is changing things uh, in so many ways and how so many things are changing our food scene, as we talked about. And one thing I noticed was I, I feel like there's a, a lot of uh, great food writing and food journalism out there, especially in your publications, The Chronicle and LA Taco, about how more people of color are getting into positions of, you know, higher exposure in the restaurant scene, um, uh, uh, getting more attention, you know, speaking out more. Uh, and I was wondering if that applied to, you know, food writers and food critics and food journalists, um, because I feel like you two have been writing about this. Uh, the New York Times uh, uh critic who covers the California scene, Tejil Rao, uh, has been writing about this. Uh, Soleil Ho, the food critic, um, one of them at the Chronicles, been writing about this. And I'm just wondering, just basically from for people of color and their background and their points of view and how they're expressing them in print and podcasts and so forth, do you see that changing the dining scene and, and, and the restaurant business, particularly here in California, and how people are viewing it through their eyes? Is it making any difference? I know that's such a philosophical question, but I was just curious. Janelle's laughing, but I'm not sure if that's a good laugh or just like. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think 
I think personally that food critics have a lot of influence in the way um, people talk about restaurants in that region. So I think in California um, with the New York Times and the Chronicle and then the LA Times had Patricia um, who unfortunately left recently at the, at the LA Times. But um, there was this there was this moment when they were all sort of hired around the same time and it was amazing. Three women of color at three huge publications covering food. Um, and I think the types of restaurants they covered and, and what they chose to write about was different than you know, the white men who typically have those positions. Um, so yeah, I think it's been, it's been a, a steady evolution, but also that was already happening before the pandemic. Yeah. And Javier, I wanted to ask you too, because I feel like you have worked with or worked for uh, Jonathan Gold, who was that esteemed uh, critic for the Los Angeles Times who, who passed recently and had so much, uh, you know, exposure. Um, and I'm just curious now, that same question to you, uh, he, he made such an impact, but what kind of impact now uh, is being made, should be made, being made uh, through food writing and food journalism uh, and tying, you know, current events into, you know, uh, how that's being reflected in restaurants and dining? Thank you. That's a great question and one that always needs to be talked about. So I'm glad you're asking this question. Uh, you know, first of all, rest in peace, Jonathan Gold. Um, yes, he was my mentor. Um, I've been doing this since I was 15 years old. And he, you know, he was uh, fortunate enough. I mean, he, I was fortunate enough for him to, to answer my email when I sent him that email. But, you know, we have to remember, Jonathan Gold, uh, you know, he was arguably the first white food writer to, you know, dedicate most of his career in food criticism or food writing to, uh, to uh, highlighting like a family-owned immigrant restaurants in L.A., um, you know, before anyone else did. You know, he even has a book that I read um, occasionally called Counterintelligence. Uh, with Deli Taco, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're a very fascinating and crazy publication because never in my life would I have expected, um, you know, the secret of supporting journalism, uh, independent journalism, being in uh, tacos and free tacos. We are a taco funded journalism. Our members, which we have about 2000, all pay us their hard earned money um, and because they support our street level vision for journalism in LA. Um, you know, I come from a, 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 I got into writing about restaurants um, as like a, as a dude who grew up uh, poor in East LA and with his family. And, and so my perspective was, has always been radically different than like a lot of you know, the majority of, of food writing in, in the country. Um, so because of that, I've always represented like my LA or like, you know, the LA that I want to read about, right? Like, you know, all the communities that, that never get any attention all the voices that, that, that don't get covered east of the LA river, you know, South LA, the Valley, you know, LA is so damn big. So my, our approach has been a wild one that I've, you know, that I, I've, uh, I've spearheaded and it's, it's, I just, I trust people who aren't writers and I coach them to, uh, to write about food. So that's been our formula. So we have published in the last year, we published over two dozen new, uh, new people of color, uh, writers who, who have never written about food before. And, and my approach is I just, you know, I see someone posting on Instagram and I was like, hey, like, um, you know, I see you're really passionate about this, this subject. I uh, want to build on it a little more. And I work with them and I coach them to, to and, you know, now like three of these writers um, are now regular writers with LA Taco. 
So we, we, we're, we're just a radically different publication. Um, but I'm fortunate enough that, you know, we, because of that wild approach that ended up working out, uh, it earned us a James Beard Award in 2020 for, uh, for Emerging Voice uh, because of, you know, because of this wild, of this, you know, this very, very unique uh, formula to, to hiring new food writers. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. And I think, didn't you win a James Beard Award too for the uh, Cronicas de Taco? So you like won two yes, thank you. awards in one year. Yeah, one, two in one year. It was yeah, it was a it was a very emotional year. Very, Good job. Um, but you know, and I you know, and I and I remember that. I remember John. I every day I think about you know Jonathan Golden and his and what he did, and you know, and I try my best every day to make him proud and to you know and carry his his same spirit um, in the and make food writing uh, open to all and uh, most importantly equitable. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Javier, because my generalization about California, I was really thinking about what's the big evolution in the Bay Area um, going from Michael Bauer to Solejo, I think has been um, really dramatic for a lot of our readers, um, less so in LA. But um, it's been interesting because the food section before I arrived and before Soleil arrived and you know, just several years ago, it was a mostly white food section and now it's, it's mostly people of color. And I think uh, readers definitely see the difference and many of them appreciate it, but not all. <laughs> we definitely get readers who think we um, should be writing about fine dining more or what about the restaurants most of us in quotes want to actually go to um, and it can be very insulting, but um, that is all to say we still have a long way to go on a national level, I think. So yes, people seem very passionate about food and their restaurants here in California, and they want to support and they, they speak out about it. Um, so I was wondering then on that note, how can we Californians, uh, obviously as, as, as foodies and as uh, consumers and as diners help restaurant owners of all types, um, stay alive and, and thrive? I mean, obviously it's going out and buying a meal um, is an obvious thing, but are there other things that, uh, that we should consider um, in some ways that you think would help? Well, I think where you spend your money makes a big difference. Um, no offense to restaurant owners, but they are not all created equal. And I think there are some that are trying to do a lot of good in the community and um, there are others that aren't. And you could be going to big chains or you could be going to your small independent neighborhood restaurant. Um, you could be putting money directly toward a chef who is still trying to make it on their own. Um, you could also be contributing to some nonprofits that are helping restaurants survive right now. There um, is SF New Deal, for example, in San Francisco. And I know there's a lot all over that are paying restaurants to make meals that then go to vulnerable populations. And a lot of restaurants um, are still really depending on that. And there are others that are you know, supporting laid off work that can't go back to work for whatever reason. So there's a lot of things you can do. And also when you go out to eat, um, be patient right now. 
as we discussed, the staffing shortage is real. And while some restaurants are intentionally keeping their service very limited because they don't have enough staff, um, others understandably also just want to get as much business as they can. And that means the people who are there are overworked. Yes, uh, pay, uh, that was exactly what I was going to say. Just patience is the name of the game right now, um, you know, for the diner. And even like in a lot of like the intangible things that, you know, that we don't think about when we go eat, like, right, like the, like maybe the Uber or Lyft will, you know, make you wait an extra 40 minutes for your car or, or parking will be extra hard or, you know, you're going to be set later. And so maybe, uh, maybe don't go so starving, maybe have a little snack before so you're not so hangry. And uh, aside from that, yes, as Janelle said, uh, you know, it's right now, it really is like, uh, you know, a lot of restaurants are trying to make back, you know, like for a lot of lost money. So if you're enthusiastic about a restaurant, you know, make, go ahead and post about it on Instagram, go ahead and post about it on your Facebook or Twitter or, or TikTok. Um, you know, it's even though you're not an influencer, even though you're not getting paid to do that, uh, which is, you know, that's okay. Um, you know, a, a lot, a lot of the small gestures go a long way. And, you know, and bringing back, uh, you know, the, the, the fun of dining again. And, uh, but again, just have patience and, uh, and don't leave uh, a horrible Yelp review for one star. If you, if you, uh, if they took a little longer to bring you your, your cocktail. Yeah. I would also just add um, tip. Well, I've read a lot of studies about how tips um, exploded early in the pandemic, but have already fallen down um, to pre-pandemic levels. And uh, it's still it's still a good time to tip, including on takeout. All right, last question. Of course, I can't let you leave without giving me uh, a couple of food recommendations in your part of, in your neck of the woods, because I, I am planning to go uh, to San Francisco next month, I believe, and LA in September. So, I, I'm sure you had many favorites. Just pick one that uh, you think should deserves a shout out right now and get, should get some support and, and that I should go and eat at. Well, in San Francisco, um, one of my favorite restaurants that I think, you know, is also part of this reopening where if you want to be in a beautiful dining room and have great service and um, have food that doesn't always travel as well, um, and have, you know, the experience, I highly recommend Nari, which is an amazing Thai restaurant. Um, it doesn't have a Michelin star yet, but I'm sure it will. And the food is just, um, it's just incredible. It's hard to describe, but uh, really amazing, punchy, fiery, funky flavors with California touches. So like Maybe instead of using a, a dry pineapple in a dish, the chef will use beautiful California nectarines. So it's fun. What part of town is it in? Japantown. Japantown. Okay, great. Javier. This, this is such a tough question. Um, I know. Just pick one. <laughs> one? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess if I, if, I had to, if I had to choose one, and I'm thinking very carefully about this answer, um, you know, because um, uh, it's not it's not about what I want to eat. Um, cause it's what I, I want to eat. It's exactly. Um, you know, it also shows the breadth of how amazing LA's taco life has become. Uh, I would recommend going to Tamales Elena y Antojitos in Bell Gardens. 
they are LA's first Afro-Mexican uh, restaurant um, who is all woman owned. Um, it is a family from Guerrero and, uh, and their food is the only one in LA right now doing Afro uh, influences. Um, so think like a you know a guisado, which is a stewed a stewed dish of a beef tongue, uh, you know, in a, in a very mole-like salsa, and top with like fried plantains, and served with rice, and served with tortillas. Instead of horchata, they have like a, a toasted cacao drink that is almost like horchata. So it's just a it's a it's an amazing place. It's it's a little bit you know it, it's a destination. It's about half an hour, twenty minutes. Uh, it's twenty minutes without traffic, or fifteen minutes uh, with half, or, or half hour away from downtown LA. But it's it, you go there and it's and it's uh, you're like wow LA's 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 dining is amazing now I understand why everyone wants to move here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I'm hungry. Uh, you guys uh, make me want to go out and eat, uh, and I I just yeah I I feel fortunate to live in a place that you know grows food and provides all this great food for us to eat. So I'm really glad I spoke to both of you. I'm very excited to go out and, and dine and support. And thank you both for taking the time and for writing such great stories about all the food uh, and the people who make it. Um, I'm gonna, we're, I, I do have a list. I've been taking notes uh, um, uh, about all the places and, and people that you mentioned. I'm going to put the, the resource guide in our podcast so everyone can enjoy. Um, and I just want to say thanks again. And um, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Vanessa. Um, have a good day. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers, This Changes Everything, episode 17, which was recorded on July 2nd, 2021. Thanks to Janelle Bitker of the San Francisco Chronicle and Javier Cabral of LA Taco for joining us. Thanks to Nate Graham and Caleb Clark for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these topsy-turvy times, please make a donation and support our efforts to produce informative and inspiring conversation about what California should expect in the post-pandemic future. You can do that, as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes, events, and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.